Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm Gigi Todd Smith, a member of the National Association Letter Carriers Branch 507. Your support in any amount helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WRT possible. Hi, I'm Keith Steffen, also a member of Branch 507. This week we bring you organizing updates at MIT, Amazon, and Volrath in Sheboygan. We also discuss what is happening at the NLRB, get a quick update on contract negotiations at CUNA, take a look at Medicare privatization schemes, share the COVID report, and much more. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. Working people scored two big victories this week. Frank Impasque has the story. Working people won victories in two completely different arenas this week, organizing on the ground and in the rulemaking arena of the National Labor Relations Board. First, victory on the ground. Graduate students at MIT have voted to form a union by a two-to-one margin. Nearly 2,900 of over 3,800 of those eligible voted to affiliate with the United Electrical, Radio, and Machine Workers of America, UE. Lily Chin, a union supporter who has been at MIT since enrolling as an undergrad in 2013, said high rents in MIT's newly built graduate student housing and slow official response to black graduate students' petition for more equitable admissions contributed to the success of the campaign. MIT's Black Graduate Student Association endorsed student effort in January. Quote, I think a union is very much in line with MIT's values of innovation, of trying things, Chin said. If the system's not working, we're all engineers here. We know how to design it better, unquote. In sharp contrast to the attitude of UW administrators and their dealings with the Teaching Assistance Association, MIT administration congratulated the organizers adding they, quote, expect to meet with MIT Graduate Student Union and UE leaders to begin good faith negotiations over the terms and conditions of employment for members soon. Meanwhile, working people also won a victory on the legal front Thursday. National Labor Relations Board General Counsel Jennifer Abruzzo issued a memorandum to all field offices announcing she will ask the board to find mandatory meetings in which employees are forced to listen to employer speech concerning the exercise of their statutory labor rights, including captive audience meetings, a violation of the National Labor Relations Act. General Counsel Abruzzo explains that the board has long recognized that the act protects employees' right to listen to or refrain from listening to employer speech concerning their right to act collectively to improve their workplace, forcing employees to attend captive audience meetings under threat of discipline discourages employees from exercising their right to refrain from listening to this speech and is therefore inconsistent with the National Labor Relations Act. The General Counsel is independent of the five-member board whose job it is to adjudicate disputes regarding the enforcement of the National Labor Relations Act as amended. 
Abruzzo's memo comes on the heels of Amazon's decision to challenge the recent work and victory at Amazon's fulfillment center, claiming that the actions of the NLRB tainted the results and that the NLRB is biased on the side of the union. I am Frank Emsbach from Madison Labor Radio. A last-minute rule implemented at the end of Trump's presidency further privatizes Medicare. I'm speaking with John Thompson, an international representative with the UE who is based in Pittsburgh. He also works with labor activists for single-payer health care and is fighting for Medicare for All. Can you explain what's going on with Medicare and the move to privatize? This new entity called Direct Contract is something that got started under the Trump administration, but developed under this uh, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation to privatize traditional Medicare. It was supposedly created to improve the outcomes and decrease costs, but that's not the way it's working. So these direct contracting entities inserts a for-profit middleman between Medicare and the doctors who manage the care of seniors and people with disabilities. My understanding is that Medicare recipients are currently being pushed into Medicare Advantage plans that are also privatized plans. Can you explain how this all fits into this new privatization push? The threat to Medicare has been going on for quite some time now. It started decades ago with this program called Medicare Advantage. Almost 50% of Medicare enrollees in a Medicare Advantage plan right now. And Medicare Advantage is just a privatized entity. A lot of their enrollees don't even realize they're not in traditional Medicare. Medicare Advantage, just in 2019, for example, cost the trust fund $7 billion more than what would have been paid under traditional Medicare. Even with that, seniors had worse outcomes. What's the impact for Medicare recipients in terms of what that means for them? This new entity called Direct Contracting Entities, which are for-profit DCE middlemen, they're out buying up doctors and private practices. A lot of the Medicare beneficiaries who, whose doctors are being bought up by these entities aren't even aware that they're now being enrolled in these things. When they do find out, they can opt out. However, they would have to go and find a new doctor, which, you know, given that if you're on Medicare and you're a senior or you have disability, you're not really going to do that. Someone who is investigating Medicare or going to become a recipient in the near future, what can they do to make sure that they're not getting enrolled in these Advantage plans? These Medicare Advantage plans flood the airways, inundate people who are Medicare eligible with mail, junk mail. So there's a lot of confusion going around about enrolling in these programs. And I can tell you that Medicare itself isn't doing a very good job of educating seniors on how to enroll in traditional Medicare. When you're trying to figure this out, it's not simple. What does that mean in terms of patient care? They're incentivized to deny care. So these new entities can keep up to 40% of the savings. So Medicare pays out to these entities X amount of dollars. If they deny care or they don't use the care, those entities can keep up to 40% of those dollars. So there's a built-in incentive to deny care from the get-go. What is being done and is there any chance that we'll be able to stop this? The Physicians for a National Health Program have been doing great work on exposing this new threat to Medicare. 
and they've been organizing around the country. If you go to their website, pnhp.org, first thing that will come up is a petition for people to sign, and they've gathered over 100,000 signatures on that petition, calling on the Biden administration to stop this program. Unfortunately, 50 members of Congress signing on to a letter that was sent to uh, DHS Secretary Becerra calling on him to cancel this program. What did they do? They changed the name of the program. So now it's called REACH. We've been having meetings with members of Congress about this, and most of them aren't even aware of it. That's how it's been flying under the radar screen. So do you have any closing comments? Well, this is a serious threat that people aren't aware of. They need to educate themselves about, contact their member of Congress, voicing their opposition to it. We say don't privatize Medicare, expand and improve it. Thank you. That was John Thompson, long-term activist in the fight for Medicare for All and an international rep with the United Electrical, Radio, and Machine Workers of America. I'm Ellen LaLazerne for Labor Radio. Workers at Volrath Manufacturing Services are on strike. Volrath is a major employer in the Sebroyan area. Carol Wydell has the story. On Monday, more than 265 workers, represented by the United Auto Workers, or UAW, Local 1472, went on strike in Sheboygan. Workers at Volrath Manufacturing Services rejected the company's initial contract proposal by 74%. Economic issues related to wages and the elimination of pay tiers motivated the workers to reject the proposal. Volrath produces deep-drawing, metal-spinning, metal-fabrication, and refrigeration systems as a major employer for Sheboygan families. Ron McEnroy, director of UAW Region 4, described the position of the local union in this statement. It is not easy to go on strike for UAW members and their families. We appreciate the community supporting striking workers and their families as they fight for good-faith bargaining and good-faith union jobs and benefits. Stephanie Bloomingdale, president of the Wisconsin AFL-CIO, released a statement in support of the union. The Wisconsin labor movement proudly stands in solidarity with our sisters and brothers of UAW Local 1472 on strike at Volrath in Sheboygan for a fair and just contract. UAW 1472 members are holding the line to protect our American middle class and standing up for fair wages and benefits. We urge Volrath to come back to the bargaining table and negotiate in good faith with meaningful proposals to reach a mutually agreeable contract. The UAW's McEnroy encouraged a return to the bargaining table. We welcome the company back to the table with meaningful proposals to address our members' concerns. The union and the company are expected to meet again today. Reporting for Labor Radio, this is Carol Weidel. A number of school board races were decided on Tuesday. We hear about some of the results in the southwestern part of Wisconsin. John Wedge, a Region 6 staffer at the Wisconsin Education Association Council, or WEAC, reviews the outcome of the April 5th school board elections. We've been quite successful in the school board elections in terms of 
the kind of candidates that we really wanted to see elected and that were supported by us and the South Central Federation of Labour. The local associations that I work with are all in the seven counties to the south and southwest of Madison. So in Dane County, Greene County, Jefferson County, Rock County, Lafayette, Iowa and Grant counties. It includes both rural and urban or suburban districts. We have had some places where there was a very clear choice for electors between candidates that had gone out there to tell everybody that they supported educators, they support public education, and candidates that were really focused on what I perhaps would choose to call kind of culture war pieces. So that were running because they were unhappy about the way that the school district approached issues like masking or vaccinations in the pandemic, or they were complaining about curricula that were being potentially taught in the district, or they were unhappy that the school district were adopting policies that were open and that were non-discriminatory towards LGBTQX folks. So that gave us a lot of challenges where, you know, we had a very clear choice of the kind of people who were running for these seats. Of all the elections that took place this last Tuesday, what are some examples or ones that you can point to that you thought went pretty well? There were three incumbents that ran for re-election in Middleton, and they were all re-elected. We had a very close race in Euglaris, where two candidates who, again, I would describe as pro-public education candidates, were successful, one of them by a very narrow margin. In Monroe, we had a very successful three candidates, two of whom were incumbents. Monroe is a really good example of a district where they've had a lot of challenges through COVID and there's a significant level of unity. The administration, the school board and the teacher unions have really worked hard to keep on the same page that there's an open dialogue and that there's a lot of community support for the school district. What makes a good school board candidate? I think it's somebody who really cares about public schools and really cares about students. It's certainly not for somebody who's got one single issue that they're really, really fixated on. From the union perspective, we want them to be people who understand the importance of the worker voice And we want them to be people who understand how it is that that finds its way into the policies in the district, that it's critical that we have an ongoing meet and confer process where we can work through issues that workers, educators are going to have a direct impact on school district policy and that they're going to be a very strong voice when the district sits down and thinks about budgets and where the resources need to go and where the needs are and how important it is to recruit and retain educators. That was John Wedge from WEAC. This is Janine Ramsey reporting for Labor Radio. Next, we'll hear about the tactics that brought victory to a grassroots union movement on Staten Island last week. 
Last Friday, a small crowd surged out of the regional offices of the National Labor Relations Board in New York City. As they filled the sidewalk, cries of jubilation filled the air. An Amazon fulfillment center, located on Staten Island and identified by the shorthand JFK 8, is now union represented. A first in the country for the logistics giant. One member of the crowd is Christopher Smalls. A former employee of JFK 8 and president of the independent Amazon labor union. Supporters and journalists alike thronged the newly unionized crowd as Smalls popped a bottle of champagne in celebration and received questions. We want to thank Jeff Bezos for going to space because when he was up there, we were signing people up. Yeah, we were signing that campaign. <laughs> and today the people have spoken and the people wanted a union. The union's campaign relied heavily on unconventional organizing tactics to reach out to workers. Union organizers designed and printed wanted posters of union busters with pictures and salaries to distribute to employees. Specific efforts were made to reach out to the African immigrant community employed at the warehouse by distributing traditional cuisine and sending organizing messages in multiple languages. Smalls himself was arrested by the NYPD outside of JFK 8 after attempting to deliver food to employees of the warehouse in February and says that he spent time sleeping at the bus stop outside of the warehouse to talk to workers on their way in and out of the campus. Despite the long odds afforded to organizers, the final tally left the union ahead of the company at approximately 2,600 votes for and 2,100 against out of a possible 8,300 voters. The deficit in favor of the union exceeded the number of disputed ballots left outstanding. So the board certified the ALU's victory. Meanwhile, in Bessemer, Alabama, the results of another union election were less certain. This is the second time Bessemer employees have had the chance to vote on unionization after the NLRB ruled late last year that Amazon had unduly interfered in the highly publicized first election. The initial count of 993 to 885 in favor of Amazon is still too close to call as there are approximately 400 contested ballots that remain uncounted. In the wake of the victory on Staten Island, Amazon Labor Union claims that they have received communication from at least 50 new Amazon locations across the country, who each express their interest in organizing. Amazon has expressed its intent to challenge the results of the Staten Island election, arguing that the NLRB asserted inappropriate influence in overseeing the vote. I'm Sean Hegerup, reporting for Madison Labor Radio. More news on Amazon and its workers. The family of a worker who died at an Amazon facility during December's tornadoes has sued the retail giant, giant for negligence. Craig Jabosky interviews an attorney in the case. In December, Labor Radio reported on the deaths of workers who were kept at corporate facilities during a string of deadly tornadoes that hit the Midwest, including six workers killed at an Amazon facility in Edwardsville, Illinois. In January, the family of one of the workers killed has filed a lawsuit against Amazon. Jack Cachado is a partner in the Chicago-based Clifford Law Offices and represents the family of Austin McEwen. Cachado describes the case he and his clients have filed against the retail giant. So we filed a lawsuit, the first lawsuit on behalf of the McEwen family, stemming from the death of their son, Austin McEwen, which occurred on December 10th, 2021. And the overall general premise of the lawsuit is Amazon knew a tornado was coming. Amazon knew it did not have approved FEMA safe rooms or FEMA approved shelters, even though Amazon actually sells them themselves. And when you knew you couldn't protect your employees within your own facility, there was nothing wrong with sending them home that day, not having them on production lines during a peak holiday season. 
This week, a report by investigators of West County Fire and EMS was released to the public, claiming that support columns in the part of the building that collapsed in Edwardsville were not bolted or welded to the floor, but were instead resting in holes packed with caulk. Cachado commented on what he sees as the significance of the report. The night of the accident, a government-mandated structural specialist and professional engineer went to go investigate the collapse mandated by the government and the county and found that most of the support beams in the area where the building collapsed were not properly anchored, which is a grave violation of the International Building Code. Amazon recently gained local government approval in our listening area to build a 3.4 million square foot distribution facility in the Madison suburb of Cottage Grove, taking up an estimated 145 acres in all. Labor Radio asked Cachado if he knew if problems found at the Illinois facility had translated to other Amazon facilities. You know, I don't know the answer to that. We know specifically that this specific Amazon fulfillment center or distribution center had numerous international building codes, but you'd hope if Amazon is now building more and more facilities, one as you allude to being built in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, they should learn from this and make sure that the future facilities are built in compliance so when inclement weather comes, your walls don't come crashing down on your employees. That was attorney Jack Cachado of Clifford Law Offices, who represents the family of a worker killed at an Amazon facility in Illinois last December. Cachado and his clients are seeking a jury trial in Madison County, Illinois, the site of Austin McEwen's death. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. We continue to our coverage of the APE. IU Local 39 and CUNA contract negotiations with this update. According to our sources, negotiations are continuing at a glacial pace, especially given the large number of items on the table. The economic package, among other items, is still unresolved. The contract expired on March 31st. Last week, students in Milwaukee stood up for school cafeteria workers and themselves. Greg Jabosky reports. School lunch justice, school lunch justice, school lunch justice, school lunch justice. A week ago Thursday, March 31st, student members of Youth Empowered in the Struggle, or YES, the youth wing of the Milwaukee-based immigrants' rights organization Vosas de la Frontera, gathered at the central offices of the Milwaukee Public School System with a list of demands. Their campaign, called School Lunch Justice, demands both improved lunches for students and improved staffing and compensation for school cafeteria workers. Here is Catherine Villanueva, a senior at the Milwaukee School of Languages and a member of YES, listing her organization's demands for students and workers. We demand that Milwaukee Public Schools, one, provides fresh school lunch that is cooked at the school by food service staff with locally sourced ingredients, provide more lunch options simultaneously, put a system in place that identifies and accommodates students' personal, religious, and medical and dietary needs, provide large, more filling meals that leave students feeling ready to learn instead of hungry, hire more lunch staff to cook the meals and increase their wages, and the MPS School Board of Directors establish regular meetings with YES members to ensure these demands are met and implemented with student voices at the table. That was Catherine Villanueva, 
a Milwaukee School of Languages senior, and a member of Youth Empowered in the Struggle, or YES. Voces de la Frontera is organizing a return of its Day Without Latinx and Immigrants general strike on Sunday, May 1st and Monday, May 2nd, and students will join immigrant essential workers, families, and allies to highlight the school lunch justice campaign and to urge the Biden administration, Senator Ron Johnson, and Wisconsin Republicans to take action to protect immigrant essential workers and families and to stop blocking immigration reform, driver licenses for all, and in-state tuition equity. For more information, go to the Voces de la Frontera website at vdlf.org. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. Here's Kara Wido with this week's COVID. Cases increase this 14-day period ending Sunday, April 2nd, with an average of 92 cases per day. The number of people hospitalized with COVID in Dane counties was stable with an average of 27 people hospitalized each day. Percent positivity during this 14-day period was 4.8%. 63% of Dane County residents age 5 and up are up-to-date with their COVID vaccines, while 21% are fully vaccinated but not up-to-date, and 12% are not vaccinated. People ages 30 to 39 currently have the highest case rate at 23 per 100,000 per day and also have the highest percent positivity at 6.3%. A person is up to date with their COVID-19 vaccination if they have received all recommended doses in the primary series and one booster when eligible. Getting a second booster is not necessary to be considered up to date at this time. However, if you are moderately or severely immunocompromised, you are at an increased risk of severe COVID-19 illness and death. Additionally, your immune response to COVID-19 vaccination may not be as strong as in people who are not immunocompromised. You can self-identify to your moderate or severely immunocompromised status. That means that you do not need any documentation of your status in order to receive a COVID-19 vaccine dose whenever they are offered. The website vaccines.gov is the easiest way to find a vaccine or booster near you. Each site has different hours and the user must choose the vaccine. It is recommended that unvaccinated people choose either the Pfizer or the Moderna vaccines. Again, the website is vaccines.gov. Sources of information for this story are Public Health Madison in Dane County and the Centers for Disease Control. This is Carol Weidel reporting for Labor Radio. And now, our statistic of the week. CEO compensation is on the way to setting records. Median pay for CEOs rose to $14.2 million last year for the leaders of the Fortune 500 companies. This is up from the record $13.4 million for the same companies during the pandemic year. It was a different story for the workers at these companies. In half of the firms, median pay for workers increased 3.1% but in almost a third of the companies, worker pay declined. CEOs at half of the companies were paid 186 times their median worker pay in 2021. That's up from 156 times in 2018. Some observations are in order. Figures like this indicate the inequality in our society is increasing, not decreasing. Even though wages for the average worker went up by 4% in 2021, the wage gap increased. Finally, in terms of real income, the average worker will lose purchasing power if inflation remains at its current level. Thanks to the Wall Street Journal for these statistics, I am Frank Emsbach from Madison Labor Radio. 
Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Gigi Smith. Thanks to editors Frank Emspack and Ellen LaLazerne, assistant Robin G, reporters Greg Jaboski, Sean Hagerup, Scott McCullough, Janine Ramsey, Carol Wido, and damage control specialist Joanne Powers. Thank you as well to website editor J.J. Meyer. Special thanks to Keith Stephan, our reader coordinator, and to all of our readers and the members of IBEW Local 2304, WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Keith Stephan. We also like to thank all of the generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for the Blues Cruise with Dave Watts. <laughs>